You have entered a realm of terrifying proportions guaranteed to shock and dismay. This is the Public Radio Hour. Tonight, we dip our toes into the paranormal with tales from Catherine Tucker Wyndham. When the young people returned to the Peg's house with their strange story, they were accused of being moonstruck. But I'll tell you one thing, my dear. For the rest of your life, you'll regret leaving this ring. And Snap Judgment's Spooked series provides a horrific account of a slumber party and an uninvited guest. From our spellbinding local music compilation, we hear a cautionary tale of greed and hear a true story of a ghastly visitation from the land of Nod. Stay tuned. We open up Pandora's box of hair-raising stories just ahead. Good evening, I'm your host, Katie Ganaway, with Brett Tannehill Producing. Tonight's stories deal with the macabre, blood, knives, and the supernatural. We hope you stay tuned to 89.3 WLRH in Huntsville for what we have in store as we present a special Halloween edition of this weekly mix of special programs and homemade radio features. Tonight's public radio hour may be too scary for some sensitive ears, so if young children are about, beware. It might be better to listen to the podcast later at WLRH.org. Tonight, our newest staff members, Corey Wilson and Stephanie Walker, read stories by Catherine Tucker Wyndham that are sure to chill your bones. Bonnie Blagg makes us all hide under the covers with her story, featured on Snap Judgment's Spooked series. And Benny Pitzinger, from our latest local alien CD, tells a cautionary tale of greed about an old blind jazz harpist and a thief. First, we step into a dark part of the Sundial Writer's Corner as Jamie Dodson, a former intelligence officer, tells us about the time his family was visited in their sleep by a most frightening ghost, drenched in red. In the mid-1990s, the Army posted my family to Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Post housing assigned us to family quarters at 110 Grierson Avenue. My wife fell in love with the old stucco house that had five fireplaces and was built in 1879. It was home to many Army families over the years, but unbeknownst to us, it had a dark history. One night, our four-year-old daughter ran into our bedroom saying there was someone in her room. I checked but found no one. She never slept alone in her room again. Our two sons also complained about someone in their rooms late at night. I chalked it up to the old house moaning and groaning as it settled into the high desert. A few months later, Joan's parents paid us a visit. Early the next morning, I found my disheveled father-in-law in in the kitchen. His dreams had been haunted by a ghostly image of a blood-soaked woman with long blonde hair at his bedside. As a retired no-nonsense cop, he was anything but faint-hearted. My mother-in-law had a similar dream while visiting. When a former comrade stayed with us, he asked if the house was haunted. Up late one night, reading, he'd seen the visage of a blood-soaked lady in white. Ranger Bill commanded paratroopers in combat and was not prone to flights of fantasy. About a year later, our family had an unusual experience while I was deployed to Bosnia. Post Housing called and asked if a former resident could visit. Mary E. Palmer arrived with military police escort the following day. A gracious lady in her 70s, she asked to be called Polly. She wanted to visit the house where her parents had died. Over tea, Polly relayed the terrible events of December 1932. A private James Abernathy had been stewing for days about his recent demotion from sergeant. He blamed his commander and Polly's father. On the evening of 29 December, Abernathy became unhinged. He shot and killed his commander and the commander's wife. Then he drove to 110 Grierson, our quarters, where he shot and killed Polly's father and mother. Alerted by the gunfire, the military police arrived, and Abernathy died in the ensuing firefight. Polly was 10 when she witnessed her parents' murder. 
She recalled that her mother wore a white shift that night of her murder and had unbound her long, blonde hair. During the quarter's tour, Polly stiffened at our daughter's bedroom. She pointed a shaking finger at the antique mirror hanging above the fireplace. This was my room. That's my mirror. It was hanging there the night the military police took us away. My wife explained that it couldn't be the same mirror. We bought it at an estate sale in North Carolina just before receiving orders for Fort Huachuca. Polly was adamant and asked to see the back. She turned it over and pointed to her initials, M-E-B, carved in the wood. Hearing this, our daughter offered to return the mirror. Polly demurred and said, you keep it. You'll need it to comb out those lovely golden curls. Later, we learned that the Army shipped the Palmer's household goods to North Carolina relative. Polly went to live with other relatives in Maryland. She had not seen the mirror since that awful day in 1932. Polly passed in 2009 after a life filled with love and many children and many more grandchildren. I want to believe she is reunited with her parents. After Polly's visit, the ghostly apparition ceased and we moved on to another posting. Our daughter now lives with her husband in Birmingham, Alabama. The mirror hangs on her bedroom wall, but she hasn't reported any late-night visitations yet. Now, Sundial writer Jamie Dodson writes stories, fact and fiction, about the golden age of aviation and the espionage events leading up to World War II. Be sure to check out more scary Sundial stories at WLRH.org. Look under the Programs tab for the Sundial Writer's Corner. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville. I'm your ghost host with the most, Katie Ganaway, with the head vampire slayer, Brett Tannehill, producing. Quite often we share the work of Alabama's most iconic storyteller and longtime Sundial Writer's Corner contributor, That's, of course, the illustrious Catherine Tucker Wyndham, who came to know a mischievous ghost that lived in her house named Jeffrey. Miss Wyndham collected ghost stories from around the South and compiled some of them into several books. We'll hear a couple of those from 13 Alabama Ghosts and Jeffrey. Let's visit The Spectre in the Maze at Cahaba. The Spectre in the Maze at Cahaba by Catherine Tucker Wyndham and Margaret Gillis Fye. Antebellum Cahaba was a pleasant place to live. There seemed to be no limit to the round of entertainment and visiting in the Dallas County town. Fine carriages awaited the arrival of each boat at the Cahaba landing to convey passengers to the homes where they would be guests. Down Vine Street, Cahaba's principal business section, they drove, past its paved walks shaded by ancient water oaks, mulberry, and chinaberry trees, past the newspaper offices, the churches, the stores, the telegraph office. Just outside of town was the racetrack. Sometimes the rider who won the race would receive a silver-trimmed saddle as a prize, but some of the spectators won far more valuable monetary trophies. Beyond the racetrack was a secluded spot where cockfighting and occasionally gander pullings attracted the younger gentlemen of the neighborhood. These sports, however, were frowned upon by their elders, and those who frequented them never talked about these events at home. If the guests drove through Cahaba in the afternoon, they would likely see the town's lawyers and doctors sitting along the shady sidewalks with their chairs tilted back and their feet resting on the gnarled tree trunks, laughing and talking until lengthened shadows signaled time for supper. There was Salt Marsh Hall, scene of masked balls, enactments of romantic scenes from Byron and Moore, fanciful tableau, and political orations fiery with talk of secession. Here at Salt Marsh Hall, the battle flag was presented to the Cahaba Rifles before the unit departed for service in the Confederate Army. The flag, which was in front on every field of battle from Manassas to Fredericksburg, was accepted by Colonel C.C. Peggs, then a captain, commanding officer of the Cahaba Rifles, Company F, 5th Alabama Regiment. It was this Confederate officer, Colonel Peggs, who owned the property at which the ghostly phenomenon bearing his name manifested itself. There were grander and costlier homes in Cahaba than the one occupied by Colonel Peggs and his family, but none could surpass it in hospitality. 
The house had been in jail during the years 1820 to 1826, when Cahaba was the capital of Alabama, a background that provided the Peggs family much amusement. After Colonel Peggs purchased the property, he planned and supervised its renovation so expertly that it bore no resemblance to the place of incarceration it had once been. The Peggs' home fronted on Pine Street and occupied the entire block between Pine and Chestnut. Magnolia trees, Lombardy pines, and oaks grew about the grounds, and flower gardens and fountains added to the tranquil beauty of the place. The most distinctive feature of the premises, and the one most enjoyed by young guests, was the labyrinth or maze of thick cedars. No place in Cahaba was more popular with the couples out for a stroll than was this evergreen labyrinth, and leisurely walks through the peg's maze became a part of the ritual of courtship in Cahaba. So it was that one soft moonlit night in the spring of 1862, a young Confederate soldier and his sweetheart were promenading in the Peg's garden. He had only a few days leave and there was much he wanted to say to the beautiful girl beside him. Before the promenade began, the young people had paid a proper call on the elders in the Peg's home. The soldier, perhaps, had brought messages from Colonel Peg's, who was then in Virginia with the Cahaba rifles. This duty discharged, they now turned their thoughts from the tragedy of war to the joy of their own reunion. Their stroll led them naturally to the maze of cedars. They had entered one of the circular walks leading to the center of the labyrinth when a large white glowing ball darted towards them. It appeared to be floating in the air a few feet above the ground as though controlled by some powerful but invisible force. The ball played a taunting game with them, swerving from one side of the walk to the other and then hovering directly in front of the couple, almost daring them to catch it. Then it would recede and disappear in the thick cedars, reappearing seconds later right beside the startled pair. The soldier, being accustomed to having solid and logical explanations for all happenings, was at a loss to explain the antics of the luminous ball or to account for its origin. But he decided that it was an illusion caused by the reflections of the moonlight on some object hidden from their view. Don't be frightened, he said, putting his arm gently and protectively around the girl's waist. It's just some trick the moonlight is playing. Let's walk back toward the house. I'm sure the thing won't appear again. But it did. They had retraced their steps only a short distance through the maze when the bright sphere appeared in front of them and began performing all sorts of gyrations. This time, motivated by both curiosity and exasperation, the soldier jumped toward the object and tried to catch it. But just as he seemed to have it in his grasp, the ball twirled away and disappeared completely. When the young people returned to the Peg's house with their strange story, they were accused of being moonstruck. However, the account of their encounter with the apparition was upsetting to the women of the household, who wished more fervently than ever that Colonel Peggs were at home to protect them from whatever it was that was cavorting around in the night. After its initial appearance, the dancing ball of light was seen by several other persons. Their stories of its erratic behavior differed only in small details from the accounts given by the couple who first saw it. The phenomenon became known as Peggs' ghost, and stories of his antics were told throughout the countryside. Strolling in the maze became more popular than ever, as couples hoped, yet feared, that they might also have an encounter with the eerie object. And what girl could object to having a strong, protective arm around her in such frightening surroundings? Colonel Peggs himself probably never heard about the ghostly ball which bears his name. He was mortally wounded in battle at the Battle of Gaines Mill, Virginia, on June 27, 1862, and died July 15, 1862. He was buried at Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. When news of his death reached Cahaba, a Negro boy ringing a bell went from house to house carrying a black-bordered funeral notice. From the messenger's shoulders flowed long black streamers known as weepers, a Cahaba custom which has long since disappeared. Gone, too, are the old pegs' home, the flowering shrubs, the fountains of the maze. A few clumps of old-fashioned yellow jonquils and some scattered piles of broken brick are all that remains to mark the scene where the strangely bright Peg's ghost caught such excitement more than a century ago. But stories of the glowing ball are still told, and occasionally a fisherman returning home late at night from an outing on the river or a hunter trying to follow the baying of his hound will report seeing a white fireball near where the circles of cedars once provided background for a supernatural display.
That was Corey Wilson, one of WLRH's new team members. His counterpart, Stephanie Walker, is a huge Catherine Tucker Wyndham fan. Also from the book 13 Alabama Ghosts and Jeffrey, Stephanie shared this grim tale of a young lady who had a little trouble making and keeping friends. A quick warning before we start, the following tale contains mention of a suicide. The Red Lady of Huntingdon College Huntingdon College in Montgomery has been haunted for years by a ghostly visitant known as the Red Lady. Actually, according to some accounts, there have been two apparitions who walked or walk the dormitory halls by night and who wore or wear red. The first lady, dressed in red, appears at the college when it was still upstate in Tuskegee before moving to Montgomery in 1910. She was seen one night in Sky Alley, the top floor of the dormitory in the Tuskegee Institution. It was just after all lights were turned off at 10 o'clock in the evening when she came into view, walking up and down the corridors in lonely vigil. Looking neither left nor right and uttering no sound, the lady clad in a red evening dress and carrying a red parasol was visible through a crimson aura of light which surrounded her and cast a lurid glow over her unearthly features. The frightened students who saw her hastily gathered in one room and moved a heavy washstand against the door, but they continued to hear her footsteps. These weirdly rhythmic sounds alarmed them so greatly they became panic-stricken. One of the girls fainted, and nobody dared speak above a whisper until at dawn the tap-tap noise of her clicking heels died away, and she was finally glimpsed disappearing into the gloom of an avenue of cedars leading to an entrance gate. The students at the old college never saw the Red Lady again, but for a long time, their sleep was made restless by memories of the ghostly promenade. The mind of one girl became so unhinged that she would not retire at all without having a lighted taper burning at her bedside, and the nerves of others neared the breaking point. Nobody at Tuskegee could explain the reason for the appearance of this luridly red ghost in the college dormitory, nor did anyone know who she was. But there was a good reason for the visits of another red lady to the college after it was moved to Montgomery. This ghost was a former student named Martha, who had lived a sorrowful life, which came to a tragic end in her room on the fourth floor of Pratt Hall. Martha was from New York, and she came to Huntington because her father's will specified that his daughter must attend her grandmother's, his mother's, alma mater. This alma mater had been Huntington when it was in Tuskegee. Martha did not especially want to come to Alabama, but her father's fortune was large, and she knew his deep love for his home state of Alabama. So, although knowing no one in this deep south area, Martha somewhat reluctantly came to Huntington. She was dressed in red when she arrived, and she brought with her red draperies for her windows and a red spread for her bed, as well as other accessories of the same color. From the beginning, she refused to explain her apparent obsession with the color red. Being a stranger and shy, as well as unhappy in her unfamiliar surroundings, she could not make friends among the students. They sensed that she was different from themselves, and having heard she was wealthy, they mistook her shyness for disdain. Martha sat alone and apart from them in the dining hall. She seldom spoke to her roommate, and when girls stopped in to visit, she seemed so cold and unfriendly, they just stopped coming. To tell the truth, many of them had come out of curiosity to see the red prayer rug Martha had bought in Turkey, or the odd little red figurines on her bookshelves. Her roommate found the situation unbearable and asked the house mother if she could move out. The house mother granted this request and put someone else in the room with Martha, who became increasingly aloof and irritable. This second girl also left her after only a week. This procedure happened again and again, as one roommate after another found it impossible to live with the surly girl. At last, the president of the dormitory, who was known for her ability to get along with everybody, moved in with Martha and did all she could do to make friends with her, but all efforts were futile. Martha had become embittered as well as withdrawn, and she seemed to resent the presence of this kind-hearted girl. After all her efforts at friendship had failed, and after she found herself growing depressed and despondent, the dormitory president packed her belongings and prepared to leave. 
Just as she was about to go, Martha, who had not known of her imminent departure, returned to the room. With a look of defiance, she said, So, you couldn't stand me either, like all the rest of your stuck-up friends. I was beginning to think you really wanted me to be your friend, but you hate me just like the rest. Well, I'm glad to be rid of you. Take your things and go. But I'll tell you one thing, my dear. For the rest of your life, you'll regret leaving this room. The house president was disturbed by this bitter outburst, but in the midst of her many activities, she soon forgot about Martha's prophetic words. The sad girl, abandoned by the person she had believed to be her only friend, formed the habit of wandering into rooms where the other girls were congregating. But her presence cast a chill upon the groups, and they would soon find flimsy excuses for leaving her alone. Then, with a feeling of alienation from all humankind, she would return to her solitary sleeping quarters, where she would wrap herself in her red bedspread as though she were retreating from the whole world. Later, her behavior became even more strange. She would wait until lights were out, and then she would visit one dormitory room after another, never saying a word, but staring into space as if she were in a trance. As time passed, she took to walking up and down the halls during the darkest hours of the night. Often she would alarm girls by opening and closing their doors, then hurrying away to resume her pitiful promenade. One evening, after Martha had not appeared for classes or meals all day, her former roommate, the dormitory president, had a guilty feeling and decided to go see her, thinking this time she might be able to help Martha in some way. As she neared Martha's room at an isolated end of the corridor on the top floor of the building, she noticed the first of the now-famous flashes of red shooting out into the corridor, down from the room's transom, as so many girls have since seen. She opened the door and screamed. Girls from all over fourth floor Pratt rushed from their rooms to see what was wrong. They found the dormitory president lying in a faint within the doorway of Martha's room. Not more than three feet beyond her lay Martha, dressed in her red robe and draped in her red bedspread with blood around her on the floor. Martha had carried out her threat by slashing her wrists and bleeding to death. This happened a long time ago. But students at Huntington say that on the date of Martha's suicide each year, rays of crimson light flash down from her over her transom, and the red lady in her bizarre clothing returns to haunt the halls of Pratt Hall at Huntington College. All spooky fun aside, suicide and mental health awareness are something we take very seriously, so we want to remind you that there is help for those feeling alone in the world. Crisis Services of North Alabama offers a text line operating every day between 4 and 11.30 p.m. That number is 256-722-8219. Or call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. Find podcasted versions of Katherine Tucker Wyndham's stories under the Programs tab at WLRH.org. Then click Sundial Writer's Corner. While you're there, you can binge past episodes of the Public Radio Hour as well. And if something you hear leaves a warm, tingly feeling in your soul, make sure to share it on social media. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Make sure to give us a follow, and we won't send Jeffrey after you. A thief, a tip jar, and a blind musician. From our latest Local Aliens local music compilation, here's Benny Pitzinger delivering a warning of greed and eternal damnation. The street was dark and empty as I walked home from the bar. But somewhere up ahead, the sound of someone blowing on a harp. Then in the entrance of the alley, saw the old man playing there. He must have listened to his blues for nearly half an hour. He stared ahead with empty eyes, and it became clear to me. The old musician was as blind as anyone could be.
reached into my pocket, dropped my last dollar in his jar. He nodded thank you as he played and stared out into the dark. Then he reached around for his white cane and got up to his feet. Said, excuse me, son, nature calls, and what must be, must be. He headed down the alleyway, tapping as he went. The taps grew ever fainter as the darkness swallowed him. Why he left all his things out on the street His case full of harmonicas And all the tips that he'd received The longer that I stood there The louder the money called to me I grabbed the half full tip jar And ran off down the street I made it to my boarding house Trembling and out of breath And pulled the stolen money out Threw it on the bed As I sorted through the wadded bills Something fell onto the floor It was a folded piece of paper That I'd overlooked before I unfolded it and saw That it was just some old bill of sale I moved closer to the light so I could read the fine details. It said, sold for $30 cash, one used eternal soul. Signed with my own signature, written in blood, not even cold. I wrinkled up the document and threw it on the floor. Just then the tapping of a cane in the hall outside my door. We invite you to leave your menacing lair and come to the station to pick up your own free copy of Local Aliens 4. The song you just heard, The Harpist by Benny Pitzinger, is featured on the CD along with other fantastic samplings of original music created right here in the Tennessee Valley. You can also listen for free on the WLRH SoundCloud page. This is the Public Radio Hour's Halloween episode here on 89.3 Huntsville. Find this episode and explore past shows in our podcast archive at WLRH.org and share it on your social media using our widgets there or simply post the link. And now we ask you, dear listener, what would you do if at a sleepover your friends decided to play that game where you chant a certain phrase in the mirror three times? Better yet, what would you do if what appeared in the reflection never left. On this episode of Spooked from Snap Judgment, storyteller Bonnie Blagg presents Sharp Tooth Boy.
storage space and extra closets. My parents end up bringing one year from Chicago. to Snap Judgment for letting us share that story with our listeners. Snap Judgment airs on our main signal Saturday nights at 6 and Sunday afternoons at 2. After you've posted your Halloween party pics on the web, make sure to follow our social media pages. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search WLRH to find us. And if you like what you hear, share the Public Radio Hour on your social media. The link to listen is at WLRH.org. Just click the Programs tab, then click the Public Radio Hour. And we know your listening experience will improve tenfold when you download our new mobile app. It's totally free and can be downloaded through the Apple App Store and the Google Play Store. Happy listening, and happy Halloween, of course, and may you never be cursed by any sinister entity. I'm your host... Katie Ganaway, with Spooky Oogie Hunchback Free. Brett Tannehill, producing. We're back with more Public Radio Hour next Thursday at 7pm. Stay safe, and be merry.